chapter 2 this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And uh, we really like people to hear the Word of God. It makes us doubly happy when they hear it and then they read it with their own eyes. And so, uh, and if you, as you receive a Bible, if you don't own one, please take that one as a gift from the Lord. Second Peter on Sunday mornings, and we'll pick things up in verse 4, Peter writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of but eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Let's pray together. Lord, I just pray that not a single person in this room would ever face you as judge, but to only face you as Savior. And I pray that you would use this passage from your book, your Bible, and you would use this time to speak to any heart that hasn't yet given their heart to you and trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins to move away from the judgment that their sin and our sin deserves. And so we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit through your word this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this section of Second Peter, we have God's warning concerning the false teachers that were in existence in Peter's day, but not just in Peter's day, but they exist all the way through history and exist into this hour of Christianity and this hour in human history as well. And Peter introduced them by telling us that they like to circulate among God's people, they work secretly, they teach destructive heresies, and they will cause non-Christians to view Christianity with contempt by virtue of the unholy disciples that they produce and then concerning their following and their popularity, contrary to what we might think, they will become very, very popular and have very, very large followings. And then Peter declared that swift destruction or judgment is going to come upon them. And the idea is, since God is going to do that, make sure you don't follow them into that judgment. And in our passage this morning, Peter then elaborates upon the judgment that awaits these false teachers and even more broadly than the false teachers. Now, the Bible teaches that God is a very loving God and he is a very, very gracious God. No one who knows him knows him to be anything but that. 
But the Bible also teaches that God is a a just God, that he is a holy God, and that he is a righteous God, and he will judge when he is forced to. And I don't think that there is anything that exists in the world today, in so-called modern man, progressive man, enlightened man. Uh, You can fashion any God that you want. You can describe any God that you want. But the moment that you describe God or the God of the Bible as a God who has a standard for right and wrong, a God who will one day judge sin... At the moment, at the moment that you mention God as a God who is also a judge, you are going to incur the scorn and the ridicule of so many people today. God can be anything in everything in every person's imagination and no one will squawk about it. But if he is ever described as a God who will one day judge wrongdoing, then uh, that is out of bounds. Everything else is accepted and uh, warmly embraced uh, by God. Everything is to be like that. God loves everybody. God loves everything that everybody does. And uh, everything is, we're to be tolerant about everything and, and we're to feel warmly about every human being despite whatever kind of human being they are or what they do and that God is to be that way as well. Being a God of judgment is out of bounds even uh, for God. And it's unthinkable to a growing number of people that there's anything that they could do personally that could ever warrant the judgment of God. And there is no level of wickedness in the minds of many people, no level that wickedness could rise to around the world and in humanity that could ever warrant God stepping into human history once again and bringing his judgment upon the whole world. And thus, this allows people to live their lives without a single thought of accountability to God for the life that they're living. But the fact of the matter is, is that judgment goes on all the time in life. And there is this God-ordained, God-established judgment, for instance, that happens all around us every day in the world. And in fact, our world would devolve into chaos without strong judgment being represented as a part of the human experience. Our nation has laws. And not only does our nation have laws, but it has also put into place mechanisms, entire, vast, gigantic mechanisms in place to ensure compliance with those laws. We have, and the whole world does, police forces. We have a court system. We have jails. We have prisons and so forth. For the simple reason that no one would ever want to live in a city or a nation or a world that, number one, did not have laws, and number two, did not enforce those laws. Imagine a world without judgment. Imagine living in a world for which there were no adverse, uh, 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 something happening adversely to a person 
for sinful behavior or or for wickedness or bad behavior. Well, if you had that kind of a situation in the world, this disrespect for authority would explode. Lawlessness and crime would take over and abound. It would become the rule rather than the exception in the world. You take away judgment from a city, you take it away from a nation, and overnight you have a nation that no one wants to live in and everyone is looking to escape. Judgment has a very important place in the world. And so it is with the universe. God has laws and he enforces those laws. And he could not be just, he could not be holy, and he could not be loving if he didn't enforce those laws. And the Bible teaches that there is a penalty that has to be paid for our sin. This universe is not our universe. We think because we can send a few rockets up someplace and head out some distance or something that we've got some grasp on the universe. This is God's universe. We're just renting here. We don't even have a long-term lease. We're renting month to month here. This is God's creation. This is God's universe. This world is God's world. And just as there are penalties for breaking laws in a city or a state or a nation, there is a penalty in this universe for breaking God's law. And just as those who break man's laws are punished for their crimes, so too there's a punishment for those who break God's laws. And Peter reminds us that God knows how to judge the wicked. In other words, his promise to judge isn't an idle threat. Uh, it isn't outside of his nature. And so Peter reminds us that God knows how to judge the wicked, and he gives three examples of God's past judgments in verses 4 through 8. And he begins with the example of God's judgment of angels in verse 4. And uh, he declared that these, he's declaring basically that these false teachers are going to be judged just as God judged the angels who followed Satan in his rebellion against God, as is recorded in Ezekiel chapter uh, 28. When angels were created, they were created perfect and absolutely innocent related to sin. Uh, they I- inhabited a, a heaven and a universe and a creation, whatever it was at the, at the point of the time of the fall that was absolutely uh, a perfect environment. And yet out of their pride and out of their self-will, they joined Satan in his rebellion against God. And that's why Jude, in his short little epistle, he describes angels, uh, these angels, these fallen angels, as those which kept not their first estate. We call these angels demons, these fallen angels demons today. So you may be here today and you don't know, you're familiar maybe even from your background. Maybe you're in church today because you're too familiar with the demonic realm and now you want out and you don't realize where the demonic realm comes from, came into existence when the devil uh, rebelled against God and his authority and then some portion of the angelic realm. There's an intimation in the book of Revelation that perhaps as many as a third of that realm followed in him in his rebellion against God and they are what we call demons today and they work with the devil in working against God's plan uh, in, in the world and against God's work. 
Now, his reference to these angels being bound is very, very interesting. Maybe not to everybody, but to some of us. And we like those people to be happy too. Because we know that not all fallen angels are bound. Uh, Many of them are not. Again, that demonic realm is very active today. It was certainly very, very active at the time of Jesus as that demonic realm opposed his life and his ministry. Paul, uh, the only name I fail to mention is Mary. So... (laughs) So Paul mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6 the fact that we are in the middle of a spiritual warfare as Christians and that this realm is very, very real, the opposition is very, very real, the demonic realm and how to armor up related to it. But Peter gives us insight into the fact that some of these demons are currently bound in hell. So some are loosed and some are bound. And the hell that he speaks of here literally means Tartarus, and it signifies the deepest depth of hell. So these are some pretty, these are some bad boys here. Uh, In Revelation chapter 9, we're told concerning the great tribulation period that then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. And so clearly these are not uh, holy angels. You don't have to keep a holy angel bound in any way. These are fallen angels that have to be kept bound because of their destructiveness, their murderous hearts. What they would do to you and I and to mankind right now if they had been let loose. So, at any rate, we don't. We do know ultimately that all fallen angels, including the devil himself are going to be cast into Gehenna, the eternal lake of fire, where the Bible says they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation chapter 20. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, the Antichrist and his right-hand man, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so the point that Peter is making here uh, is that the cause of God's judgment on the angels was they rebelled against God's authority and they rebelled against God's position, which is the very thing that the false teachers were doing at Peter's time and continue to do to this very day. And so the angels did, false teachers do, they thought they were smarter than God, uh, that they're too big, too important, have too big of a following to be judged by God. And so often that's in the minds of an ungodly person or in the mind of uh, a false teacher. I mean, how could God judge him in the light of all of these, how many people look up to him and how many people think he's great and all of that. And so surely he's beyond the judgment of God. And so God reminded them that in the past he had judged those who were even bigger and stronger and more important as well, and that is the angelic realm. And it really makes a person, it does me anyway, 
makes me shudder to think about how many people in this world are living in active, deliberate rebellion against the authority of God. And yet, somehow in their minds, they believe themselves to be such a big shot or so important that they are beyond the judgment of God, that God would never judge them. But Peter teaches us that no one is exempt from judgment for this kind of rebellion, not angels and not men. And then second, Peter uh, references uh, God's judgment of the ancient world at the time of Noah. And, of course, God judged the world at the time of Noah by destroying it with a a, uh, flood, and that's recorded in Genesis chapters 6 and 7. It's interesting that the Bible doesn't just record the fact that God destroyed the world with a flood in ancient history, but the Bible is very, very um, detailed in giving us the characteristics of the world in Noah's time that immediately preceded God's judgment. And the idea is if we ever see these kind of characteristics uh, in a point in human history in building than to realize that God's judgment is due and may be right around the corner. And so the characteristics of the world at the time of Noah, which provoked God's judgment, is that it was a time of great wickedness. We live in a world that is filled with wickedness. And the problem, that's its own problem. But the bigger problem right now is in is that wickedness is expanding geometrically at this time in history. It is righteousness and goodness and good people who are on the defensive in the face of an onslaught of wickedness all around the world. It isn't a thing of wickedness in its little old pocket over here. It's fairly contained or even that it's kind of even right now. Wickedness in the world is enlarging. You want to talk about sex slavery. You want to talk about terrorism. You want to talk about crime rates. You want to talk about what's happening through drugs and, and, and the victims that are made of drugs and the drug trades. You want to talk about the drug lords. You want to talk about corruption in commerce, in banking, in stock market, in government. You want to talk about wickedness anywhere you want to look in life. And a sober person doesn't look at the enlargement of wickedness today with a confidence that this thing is being held back with any kind of effectiveness, much less that it's being beaten back. And that's the way it was in the time of Noah. It was a time of widespread sexual immorality. And you look at the age in which we live. Nobody thinks of sleeping together virtually today. And living with one another and having sex with this and I'm dating and dating means that, you know, we're together this way. And now this whole idea, God's standard of the marriage bed is undefiled. That is the place for the expression of the sexual relationship. We're not dogs. We're human beings created in the image of God. We just don't fornicate with everything that wants to fornicate with us. Excuse me for being so blunt, but that's just the way that it is. We are made in the image of God. We are fallen from that, but we still bear enough of his glory to know that we are not animals. 
And so this whole thing of moving down onto this level of, of living like animals in the area of sexuality and the pressure is so great the whole machine of commercial Babylon, all of the entertainment, all of the money, all of the songs, all of the everything, just nurturing this in a younger and a younger age and in people as if there's no consequences to any of this personal as well as national and international. And it was, it was that way at the time of, uh, of, of Noah. And to speak of any kind of sexual restraint today is to be considered a prude or backward or whatever, even though the numbers of people that just mount up in piles as victims, numbering in the millions and the tens of millions, people that will later give their right arm for a second chance to do it God's way, it all mounts up and nobody makes it peep increasingly. It was a time of widespread unnatural sexual practices. And it was a time of very strong demonic influence and involvement in the sexual practices of the world. And so you end up with a situation where once the wall is broken down as it relates to heterosexual uh, monogamy in marriage, once that goes out and now heterosexual immorality is accepted in the culture, then there's a long line of other sexual expressions that are going to line up and demand that they have kind of a favored status as well. And so that was what was happening until in the time of Noah, anything and everything was happening sexually. It was a time of man giving himself to evil imaginations continually. In other words, the very best and the brightest, the most creative uh, among the people in Noah's time They were giving all of their talents and their creativity to the development of evil, thinking of new areas of evil to explore until the whole world was musing on that evil. And you think about with with media, you think about with entertainment, television, with uh, movies. I can give you illustrations, but some of them are so profane you can't in a room like this, and I wouldn't be inclined in private company anyway. But you see how much of just the wickedness, the, the darkness, perversion. I'm not talking as a man who doesn't know darkness, that doesn't know wickedness, that doesn't know perversion. I know it. I'm a descendant of Adam and Eve, just like any other person, creative or otherwise, in the world. But there's no shame, there's no stigma attached today to expressing not only a wickedness within a heart verbally to another human being, but now to take and make a two-hour or three-hour movie out of it or put it on HBO or on one of the channels or even on the regular channels on television. And so here is something that's wicked and shameful in the heart of this creative human being. It becomes a hit show, and then pretty soon an entire nation, an entire world is now infected by their wickedness. And that's what was going on in the time of of Noah. And then the whole world is musing over these wickedness. And so much of entertainment today fits this bill Perfectly, And I'm no prude. Uh, You know, I don't like sin and I don't, you know, purposely engage in sin in in these kinds of things. 
But I like a good movie like the next person, and I like a toe-tapping song like the next person, and I like good art like the next person, and I like creativity like the next person. But here is where more and more it's all being directed toward what is base. I think about um, in terms of this whole entertainment realm. Again, it's commercial Babylon. It's money. These people drive me crazy when you get these so-called artists and they put out all of this filth and then they won't let their children watch TV, let alone watch their movies. They record all of this junk that defiles so many children and the isolation of their bedrooms or because there are no parents around, sometimes no fault of the parents because of a divorce or a death or whatever, and they're indoctrinating these children with songs that they won't even allow their kids to listen to. And the hypocrisy is astonishing. I go... um, I remember years ago, I went into a Blockbuster to rent a movie. We wanted, you know, in the mood to see a movie. Movies are powerful things. I mean, you've got music, you've got a plot line. It's going on before your eyes. And, and so, really amazing when it's done well. They aren't making Lawrence of Arabia every year, unfortunately. But, so I go in and I'm trying to find a movie, and it's not an easy thing for a Christian to find in, in, in there. And, uh, and there's this guy that's in there. He's got like nine movies all stacked up like this. And he's in front of me in the line. And I'm looking at the, the names that he's looking at that movies. And I'm thinking to myself, that guy's going to ingest all that stuff tonight or over a series of two or three nights based upon the rental policy at that time. He's going to watch some of the most perverse, ungodly stuff that you can watch and then the next morning get up, roll out of bed, and then walk out into life and pretend he's a normal human being. He is not a normal human being to process that kind of wickedness in his life. And yet that's what the world was was doing and that they, on the level of their technology, were doing the same thing today. And it was a time when the standard of right and wrong was, had been almost wiped out. Evil was being called good, and good was being called evil. And then Jesus, he declared of all of this in Luke chapter 17, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. In other words, in the mind of Jesus, as he witnessed that whole part of human history, the, the most staggering thing about the time of Noah was that in the middle of all of this wickedness, people just went on eating, drinking, feasting, uh, marrying, giving in marriage, attending weddings, all of this kind of stuff. In other words, it was just business as usual. Sin is no big deal. Life is going to go on indefinitely just the way that it always has. And the thing that Jesus chose to comment on supremely was not simply the terrible wickedness, but that people could live in the midst of all of that wickedness and not think that God would ever do anything to bring it to a stop. 
That's, that's what shocked him, if, if he could be shocked. But that's what alarmed him, was that how could human beings watch what was happening and not realize that if there is a God and he is loving and just and holy at all, he will have to judge what he watches and sees every single day. Jesus said that all of these things would once again mark the world at the time that God will judge the world again uh, during the great tribulation. And it's a perfect description of the world that we live in today. You know, I became a pastor in 1985. So this is what, 27 years? No, yeah, 27 years on this. In the, in the old days, you would take a look at certain things in terms of uh, morality, spirituality, technology, wickedness, these kinds of things. And in those days, you would look at it in germ form. You would say, now notice these trends here. And they weren't even remotely uh, big trends in the culture, but they were trends. They weren't remotely as dangerous as they are today. So you would preach from that kind of place to say, look, this is what's going on here, and if it continues, then it, it, it's, it's going to look, look bad. It, it's going to be a bad thing for the world, and it's going to indicate that the Lord, is, His coming is near. Now I don't even have to waste time with it. We're already here in 27 years. Anyone who is thinking in life recognizes how quickly all of this is advancing all around us. And for 120 years, Noah, he built that ark, and he called on people to repent and to enter into the ark, which was God's only way of salvation from the flood. No one listened. They were all so smart, and God is so dumb. Isn't it amazing to live in a world where everyone is so smart and the dumbest person in the whole universe is God. Well, that's a revelation in heaven because it isn't true. The false teachers, and again, the point that Peter is making here is that the false teachers in his day were telling themselves that they couldn't possibly be judged by God and their followers were saying, we can't possibly be judged by God because look at how many of us there are. And look at how few really believe in the Bible and obey the Bible. You can't tell me that when God pours out his judgment, that he's going to wipe out this gigantic group over here, and he's just going to leave that small, relatively smaller group uh, uh, unscathed by the judgment. That can't happen. It can happen, and it did happen, and that's the point that Peter is making. Eight People survived the flood, and the entire rest of the world was swept away in God's judgment. Eight people on the entire face of the earth were right, and everyone else was wrong. Numbers mean nothing. Polling means nothing. All that means anything is, am I in a relationship with God And am I being obedient to God in that relationship? That's what stands in the face of judgment. And then his mention of God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah in verses 6 through 8. And that judgment is recorded in Genesis chapter 19. And God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, 
uh, through uh, fire. And Peter tells us that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was due to, verse 6, ungodly living. Uh, Verse 7, filthy conduct of the wicked. In other words, their lives were filthy. And lawless deeds, verse 8, living contrary to God's laws and thinking nothing of it. We also know from Genesis chapter 19 and also from Jude, uh, verse 7, that the flagrant sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was homosexuality. And I know that homosexuals feel like they are particularly assailed by Christians and that their sin is made kind of a special example of and and a special battle is being fought against it, Um, it, you know, within Christianity, certainly in the United States uh, today. And in a sense, they they are absolutely right in one sense in in that uh, observation. We uh, do make more of their sin than we do other sins, and, 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 but, uh, but we aren't really you know, picking on them for the sake of just picking on them. There is a sense in which homosexuality is like any other sin. It's just one sin in a long list of sins. And it's as easy for God to forgive the sin of homosexuality as it is for him to forgive a malicious heart toward another person or hatred. So no sin is gigantic or bigger than another in the sense that it isn't that God doesn't have the forgiveness for it. But homosexuality has two characteristics about it that force us to give it an attention that we don't necessarily have to give attention to as it relates to other sins. Though, I just want you to know, if you're new here, uh, I I offend everybody uh, related to whatever sin they're sinning in in violation of God's Word because I love people enough uh, to, to do that. There is something unique about the sin of homosexuality, especially when it rises up and it aggressively demands to be accepted by society as a uh, okay, uh, legitimate lifestyle. And the first problem with it is that homosexuality is a sin against God. In order for a society to come to the conclusion that homosexuality is a legitimate lifestyle, that society has to become a society that utterly rejects God's standard of his word. In other words, it's a nation or a world that is saying to God, we have rejected the revelation of your word. We have rejected your commandments. We reject you as the moral authority of the universe and over mankind. The second characteristic about homosexuality is, as the Holy Spirit declares in the first chapter of Romans, is that in order to accept homosexuality is natural, a society not only has to reject God's revelation, but we also then have to reject the revelation of nature. Because at this point, even after a society has rejected the existence uh, of God, the homosexual still has a problem, and nature raises his hand and says, listen, 
I'm glad all of you have, uh, I've noticed that all of you have rejected God as the moral authority of the universe and you reject his word and you're all right and he's wrong. But I've got to add my voice to this. Nature raises his hand and nature jump, uh, jumps in at that point and, and uh, declares that if you're going to accept this, you also have to reject my, my witness, the witness of nature. Because... Even after having rejected the existence of God, the homosexual and the society that endorses it still has a problem because nature complains that the homosexual lifestyle is not natural. And anyone can see that it's true. So uh, in heterosexual sexual expression, you have uh, a this and you have a that. And everybody knows how the this and the that works. You don't have two thises and you don't have two thats. You have it. Everybody knows by creation, by nature. This is how this works. It's compatible. But in homosexuality, uh, the plumbing doesn't match for that expression. And so um, nature testifies that the sexual relationship is intended to be expressed between a man and a woman because the two bodies are perfectly compatible with one another. But in homosexual sex, there is no accommodation for nature for it. And so it's nature's way of saying, no, 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 no. Homosexuality is not only contrary to God's word, but it's contrary to nature. It is unnatural. And anyone can understand this. And it is this disregard of even the witness of nature that makes homosexuality different from heterosexual sin. And there's plenty of heterosexual sin. Fornication, that is, sexual intercourse or sexual activity outside of marriage, adultery, prostitution. Those are all very serious sins. But they are not sins against design. And homosexuality is a sin against design. And so what homosexuality becomes is it ceases to be about the sin of homosexuality and now it takes on this very, very large life and and tremendous significance within a nation or a culture. Because in order for a society to legitimize the practice of homosexuality, they have to do that Number one, in the face of the witness of God. And number two, in the face of the witness of nature. And when a nation or a society is willing to do that, it crosses a very, very dangerous line. Because once a nation can convince itself that homosexuality is natural and legitimate then there isn't any ungodly thing that they cannot convince themselves of. There isn't anything, no sin, that they cannot then come to justify in their minds. And so it requires a searing of the conscience. It requires an intellectual dishonesty. And then the problem is, is that searing of the conscience and that intellectual dishonesty now will be carried everywhere else into the culture. And now everything becomes legitimized. Nothing has a stigma. Nothing can be said no to. And then you live in a nation where things start to get 
very, very scary. Now, I know um, Christians and non-Christians both tire of uh, the body of Christ's focus upon and, and really kind of a fervent opposition to the sin of homosexuality and the sin of abortion today. But it's very, very important that they be resisted and that resistance is necessary. And here's why. Because once a nation or a world can justify the death of its children in the womb is a convenience just because we have the technology that doesn't allow us to hear their screams. And once a nation or a world can justify homosexuality as natural, then there isn't any ungodly thing that they cannot convince themselves of. There isn't any ungodly thing that they cannot justify in their minds. All of the safeguards of God, conscience, Intellectual honesty are gone, and it should frighten anyone as to what lies on the other side of that. Because now you have a moral free-for-all. Now you cannot say no to anything. And in that moral free-for-all, society will begin to unravel more rapidly and ultimately devolve into a moral chaos. And God is a lot less concerned about our economy Uh, than he is about the moral condition of this nation or any nation in the world. That's what's most important uh, to him. Because uh, the problem that society creates for itself in this is how can you choose to protect the sinful expression of homosexuality in open violation of God's word and in open violation of the witness of nature and then forbid the rest of society from doing what they want to do, from practicing their sin openly and even having it endorsed, even if it violates God's word and nature. And the fact of the matter is, is that you can't say no to anything now, at least not for very long. And it's important to note that God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, as Peter mentions there in verse 6, is intended to be a all-the-way-through-human-history warning to people that there is a specific problem with this sin, not that it is bigger than another sin or more unforgivable than any other sin, but because what it reflects about a nation and a world and what it's willing to overlook and jettison to then take a favorable position uh, toward that sin. And so it's intended to have the kind of warning that it, it has, uh, that I'm trying to give to it uh, today. I am... Um, and Peter, the reason he brings this up is because in that age, and we think, boy, things in the ancient world, it was a sexual free-for-all. It was a moral free-for-all. Anything went sexually in, in, in the ancient world. And in the time of Christ and in the time of these, these Roman places and, and all, and, and so the false teachers were rising up and they were saying, listen, all of this is okay. And they were adding their voice to the legitimizing of this sin. And today it's no different. Some of the strongest voices for, for legitimizing and taking homosexuality out of the sin category 
are those that claim to represent God and the God of the Bible. And so it's a very, very prevalent thing. Here's how I see it. I I have a friend who's a pastor, and he communicated, uh, related to his community. He pastors in a very, very liberal part of California. And he said the the... The war is lost as it relates to homosexuality in the state of California. I just don't bring it up. I don't mess with it in the congregation anymore. I don't teach it. I don't teach against it. It's lost. Why bother with it? And I say, shame, shame, shame. Who told him? Here's my point. Here's my point. Here's my point. Somebody, somewhere told him the truth, though a heterosexual, told him the truth about his sin and how God saw it and how God was willing to save him from the consequences of his sin. And then how can I live with myself if I deny that knowledge to any other person, even though that particular sin is the hot subject that it is within the culture. I couldn't live with myself. When I came to Christ, somebody told me I was a sinner and I would need to repent of my sin and put my faith in Christ and God would come into my life and give me a new nature and a desire to do what He wanted me to do that was greater than my old desires. And trust me, my old desires were strong. And they can become very strong yet. I take my spiritual man, I feed him prime rib, baked potatoes, I keep them off of the desserts, no sugar, fresh vegetables, steamed, all of it organic, just to keep him strong. I feed my flesh a saltine, and he's like Tarzan. So I get this whole thing and how it operates. If you struggle with the sin of homosexuality, you have a right to know that that's a sin. And you need to repent of that sin because it's not a part of God's plan for your life in order to come to Christ. You, you, you are supposed to know that. And somebody in this whole wide world is going to have to be honest enough with people in representing the Lord to let people know that. Everybody has a right to hear. What I do with it after I hear it, that is their business. My business is to let them know the truth. Jesus loves everybody. God wants to forgive everybody. God is not willing that any should perish under the weight of any sin, but that all should come to repentance. And this whole big thing where my fear is, is that homosexualities, homosexuals are getting feeling like their sin is just like some isolated, weird thing in their minds when it isn't. Everybody has to repent of their sin when they come to Christ. Whether I am a homosexual or a heterosexual sinner or a pyromaniac or a mass murderer or whatever, we all have to sin, to repent. So somebody says, yeah, uh, but 
my sin is homosexual and heterosexual, it's an easier thing for them to do. Yes, I will grant that a heterosexual has the freedom to marry and express that heterosexuality in marriage that is not there for the homosexual because it's not to be practiced in marriage or out of marriage. But there are so many men and women in the world in this room who are Christians who are single. And they are born again. They have as strong a sexual appetite as anybody else has. And God calls them to live with the same sexual purity that he calls a repentant homosexual to live with because many of these people will never marry as well. So it isn't like God's got some kind of a radar, some picking this sin out, this group of people out, and he really wants to pick on them. He asks the same thing, demands it, of everyone who comes to know him. He loves you. He tells you the truth about sin. And the life that he has for you is so infinitely greater than the expression of even something as strong as the sex drive. And it's all there waiting to live in purity, to live in holiness, to live in a relationship with God, to to, uh, have a conscience that's no longer seared. All of these things are waiting for the person that will turn from their sin, whatever it is, and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And God has a long record of doing this kind of thing. Paul wrote to the church at at, um, Corinth and talked about a cesspool sexually of every kind. But people were getting saved and coming out of these backgrounds and happy to do so. And Paul wrote to them and he said, Do not... Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't let anybody lie to you. Neither fornicators, that's, that's heterosexual sin, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, that is, those who practice these sins will inherit the kingdom of God. And then wonderfully, he says, and such were some of you. That church in Corinth was full of people that God had called out of sinful backgrounds and they were living a completely different life. And then one of the great buts of the Bible, Paul writes, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God will do that in our lives. I want to close with, with lessons from Noah and Lot that are given here for the godly. And the intention is in verse 5 and verses 5 and 7 is for God's people who are living in the middle of this kind of situation in the world. And so many of God's people live in the middle of this kind of growing wickedness of every kind. And God includes instruction concerning Noah and Lot so that we can learn from them on how to stand faithfully for God in the midst of a world that is really ripening for judgment. We're told that Lot's soul was disturbed continually by what he saw and among the people that he, uh, among whom he dwelt. I think all of us experience something of that 
where our heart is broken over what we see happening around us and the victims that sin is producing by the heaps. And the, the encouragement that Peter is making to us is to stay faithful to God and his word no matter what the false teachers are saying, no matter how big their followings are, and no matter how small this community becomes of Christians that are faithful to God in the last days, that we are to stay faithful to God even if we become a very small minority. And then uh, Noah and Lot also encourage us uh, that God will give us the grace that we need to live victoriously in the midst of any sin that's going on around us. He did it for Lot, he did it for Noah, and he will do it for us. He also communicates that we should never cease to be troubled by the sin that's increasing around us. It's an important protection against being absorbed by the sin. And so other people may not believe in God's judgment, but we do believe in God's judgment, and we don't want to be a part of it. And the big take-home lesson of Noah and Lot is that God will ultimately rescue us from the future judgment that he's going to pour out on the world via the rapture. He removed them both prior to the judgment being uh, meted out, his judgment, because the Bible teaches that we as God's children are not appointed to wrath. For you note takers, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Now here's my finally, finally, and very, very importantly. In verse 9, Peter speaks of God's future judgment, that God not, has not only judged the world in the past, but that the unjust, he, that God will reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment in the future. And when it happens, it will be a just and a righteous judgment. And who, who can say in the light of the holiness of God and the light of the world that we live in, that if God judged the world today, that he would be wrong in doing it. And it's interesting to notice concerning Peter's examples of judgment that he progressively narrows the scale. He begins cosmic with the angels. He then goes to the world related to Noah. He then goes to cities as it relates to Lot. And then here in verse 9, he narrows it down to you and me. Because each and every one of us as sinners has a reservoir of sin in our past that is due the judgment of God, every single one of us. Just like a great dam is put in place and the great waters are behind it, all of us have a sinful past that is deserving of the judgment of God and that judgment is coming. And the only way to be removed from that judgment is to put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins because then we are saying, God, our judgment is upon him and God will not allow us to be judged for the judgment that Jesus already bore for us. So if you sit here today and you say, I get it. My sin is serious business. And I believe and I do understand that God says, not just the ancient world and all of the bad people back there, but what about my own heart? I am a sinner. 
I believe God's assessment of me. But I also believe that God loved me so much that he sent his son into the world to die on a cross for the full and satisfying payment of my sin. And he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And he made salvation as simple as me being able to put my trust in that Savior and salvation. And then for God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit to come into my life and lead me into a new life in this life. And then an altogether new life in the life to come. And that's the offer that God makes to you. Judgment's serious business. It isn't like God hasn't done it. It isn't like God enjoys it. But one day the world will force it and God will not be holy or loving or just if he doesn't do that. But on an individual level, we will all stand before God one day and he will either, we will either face him as savior or as judge. And it will break God's heart for any of us to stand before him as our judge. You don't want to be there. I don't want to be there, and I'm not going to be there because of my faith in Christ. If you've never trusted in Christ, you need to do that today. Let's pray together. I want to just ask as we're praying here, if there's anyone here that you have... I'm not talking about a rededication by a Christian to the Lord.